I'm Nick Weaver, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today, we have episode 360 for January 22nd, 2024. Happy Data Privacy Week, everybody. Uh, I put a link in the show notes if you're interested. I'm not going to, because it's an interview week this week, I'm not going to get to do my regular uh, Data Privacy Week spiel, but never fear, I will do it next week for the tip of the week next week. But if you don't want to wait, you can go directly to my Data Privacy Checklist. This is a blog entry that I update every year around this time, and I've just updated it for 2024, and I've created a quick link to help you get there. So if you go to fdsd.me, slash DPC, as in Data Privacy Checklist, that will take you right there. Of course, the link is also in the show notes. I will remind you that I am still collecting responses from my annual listener survey. I've already gotten some. That's great. Thank you to everybody who has already replied, but I definitely need more. Uh, but I'll tell you more about that again after the interview. One thing I did want to talk about real quick before we get to the regular stuff. Uh, last week, we talked about the Apple iPhone Kaspersky situation and Operation Triangulation. And I kind of went at great length to talk about what I thought was going on there. And to be honest, <laughs> this is from what I've gotten from other sources, particularly uh, Steve Gibson from Security Now. And if you listen to that episode, I think you'll be convinced like I was uh, that the main final CVE really isn't what you would call a zero day. And the point of that being, this was some sort of an engineered privileged access mechanism. It was not a zero day. It was not a bug. It was not, it was not an accident of the code that allowed this to happen. Somebody designed this access mechanism and they did a pretty darn good job. What we don't know is whether or not it was intentionally left in there for this purpose. Uh, it could have been a debugging tool that Apple used internally that somehow got released into the regular code. As an engineer, I have seen this happen, but this is in hardware, not software, or at least mostly in hardware. So that's, that's, a, that's a trickier thing to do. It also has been updated several times across each of the chip generations from A12 to A16. So it really looks like it was meant to be there. Maybe the you know, the software aspects for the access to this were not meant to be put in the final builds that could have been, you know, that could have been where things went awry. I will probably never know. My point only was that that final key to the access to the iPhone that was exploited by Operation Triangulation was not what I would call a zero day. It was not a bug. It was not something that the manufacturer, Apple in this case, or maybe one of their suppliers uh, that snuck it in, didn't know about or it wasn't aware of. It may have been a mistake to have it in the shipping product. Like I said, we, we may never know. So I just wanted to kind of clear that up before we go any further. Okay. We have a little bit of a different kind of interview topic for you today. I am going to be speaking with Nick Weaver, who I spoke with several years ago about, I think we talked about cryptocurrency back in the day, Bitcoin. And uh, I, you know, I follow him on social media and, and I ran across something that he put out last fall, uh, a presentation he did as part of his startup called Scary Technologies, and that's spelled S-K-E-R-R-Y. And it was called Dr. Strange Drone, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Slaughterbots. Now, of course, that is a take on the Dr. Strange Love classic movie title. 
But we've talked a lot about AI on this show. And, you know, for the most part, it has, you know, kind of everyday good and bad uses. But now we're kind of talking about autonomy, which is not quite the same as AI. And we'll, we'll dig into this with, with, with Nick. And coupling that with drone technology. Drones have gotten very capable and very cheap, relatively speaking. And a lot of law enforcement agencies are now using them for surveillance uh, and, uh, and other maybe even more scary reasons. And so I saw this presentation, which a lot of it was about military uses. And we are going to spend a good bit of time on that today, which is, you know, again, kind of outside my usual wheelhouse. But as we're going through all this, I, you know, I don't want to be alarmist. I mean, unless you live in a war zone, you're not going to need to worry about them from that perspective so much. But, you know, we do talk about things about, you know, potentially trying to assassinate a political leader, or we will talk about surveillance, uh, potentially. And even as we're talking about, you know, military stuff, it's not that hard to extrapolate from these more kinetic uses to things like surveillance and crowd control, perhaps by law enforcement at protests, for example. And the reason it's kind of important, I think, today to at least understand where this technology lies is it's gotten very good and very cheap, relatively speaking, and well within the reach of uh, an electronics hobbyist, you know, like myself, to put together something like this. There's open source software out there you can download and put on a Raspberry Pi to make your own drones if you wanted, if you wanted to. So anyway, I, I don't want to be alarmist. You know, I don't want you thinking that uh, this is going to happen to you or you need to be worried about slaughter bots from the sky. But I also want to make a point of saying, and we talk about this too, is that drones have a lot of great uses as well. You know, spotting forest fires and perhaps patrolling the border. If, if you can get past some of those surveillance issues there, search and rescue. There's even drone swarms that are now being used in place of fireworks displays in a lot of cases. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. So anyway, with that as sort of a, a caveat, I, we're going to have some interesting discussions today about drones and, and whether or not we should be imbuing them with the capability to act on their own. There are a couple quick glossary terms I'll throw out. At one point, Nick's talking about uh, drones pulling 10 Gs, and that's not like 5G wireless. You know, 10 Gs in this case is... Uh, gravity, uh, 10 times the force of gravity. So, you know, when you're a, a pilot in an aircraft and you make a really hard turn, you could pull a lot of G's. Or when you're on a roller coaster, you pull a, pull a lot of G's. So he's talking about 10 G's in that sense. He also mentions uh, an IMU. That's an inertial measurement unit. That's the kind of processor that can be doing gyroscope and accelerometer measurements. Something I actually had in my DEF CON badge. So those are very cheap and very easy to use. And there's a couple other terms, but I'll actually, I'm going to save those and come back to those after the interview. So let's get right to my interview with Nick Weaver on Slaughterbots. Nick Weaver is a senior staff researcher focusing on computer security at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley, California, and he's chief mad scientist and slash CEO slash janitor of Scary Technologies, a developer of low-cost autonomous drones. Welcome back to the show, Nick. Thank you very much for having me. It's been too long. I look back, it's been like like five years. So yeah, it's it's we're overdue. And I so I ran across I don't forget how I did, but I, I ran across this talk you gave recently called Doctor Strange Drone or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Slaughterbots, which by the way <laughs> caused me to go back and rewatch Doctor Strange Love last night. I had not seen that in too long. 
So that was that was a great prompt. But it was really, really interesting. And I immediately reached out and thought it'd be good to talk about some drones, you know, particularly coupled with recent advances in AI, which I think have a significant potential to negatively impact our privacy and security. Um, you know, I want to stipulate at the outset that there are a lot of beneficial uses for drones. I think they're really cool technology. As a technologist, I love them. I own Tune myself, so, you know. <laughs> But today I want to focus on some of the risks. So before we get into all that, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, how you became interested in drones, and I'm kind of curious how your background in computer science and cybersecurity informed your research on it. So I've always been interested in drones looking at 20 plus years looking back, but I hadn't done anything with them. It's just sort of cool, cool hardware. Mm. But over the past few years... I've been worried about them, that I like to say, drones are cool, drones are neat, drones scare the living bleep out of me, <laughs> um, because there's so many offensive uses. Mm. And unfortunately, the other thing is, is we're rapidly trending towards a world where it's not really artificial intelligence, but just autonomy, mm -hmm. where the drones are able to act on their own. And that means our current defenses, namely jamming so the drones don't work um, because they can't receive commands, ceases to be effective. And the other thing is, is I've always been dealing, well, for the past 20 years with things like internet worms that are very, very fast, that a defense against an internet worm has to be automatic because anything involving people is just too slow. Mm -hmm. The same thing comes into play when it comes to defending against small autonomous drones, that if you have a small drone, the, the size of uh, a toaster, flying around at 100 miles an hour, controlled by a computer and able to accelerate in basically any direction it wants at 10G, you aren't going to stop it with anything involving a person. It has to be automatic stoppage. And for me, the only way I can think of stopping drones is either with automated cannons or other drones. So I like to put it, uh, it's the exhibit school of uh, work. Yo, dog, I heard you like slaughterbots, so I'm building slaughterbots that slaughter your slaughterbots. <laughs> right. All right, well, we will definitely get into the slaughterbots angle of this, but let, let's start with some basics. For people that, that may be listening who don't really haven't really played with with modern drones kind of get us up to speed because there's been a lot of advancements in what the what these things can do they're all over the place i mean these little quadcopter things are very popular so what was it was there a technical breakthrough or maybe a series of technical breakthroughs that allowed these sort of new kind of drones to flourish like i remember having you know remote control helicopters and such with you know but there were nothing like these quadcopters i see today there were two technological breakthroughs or evolutions that have enabled these small drones. The first is the battery technology. Batteries are just getting better and better and better. 20 years ago, we did not have these massively powerful lithium polymer batteries that will, like, a battery that's like the weight of a baseball can drain at three kilowatts plus of power out of it. So you're talking outrageous amounts of power density mm. and outrageous amounts of energy density. The other thing is something subtle, but really important, and that's microelectronic mechanical systems. These are basically silicon chips where instead of just doing circuits, you're actually building structures 
um, by etching the silicon. And there's two structures in particular that have made these small drones work. Accelerometers and gyroscopes. So basically, on your single silicon chip, you can basically have this uh, sensor that can know if it's accelerating in any of the cardinal directions and know if it's being rotated in any of these cardinal directions. And that's what was necessary to make these small quadcopters fly. So I remember when the small quadcopter toys first came out, like almost 10 years ago, and they were awful because they couldn't hover. Mm. A quadcopter is a very simple control loop. Basically, you've got four engines and you can use that to do pitch, roll, yaw, and the like. But these toys were awful because they couldn't hover. That basically you would be bouncing them up and down and they basically give up after a little bit. Yeah. But with the IMU coupled to a small microcontroller, just like a dinky little... 32-bit STM microcontroller that costs a couple of bucks, you can do a feedback loop where the drone can now go, I want to target zero acceleration and zero rotation. And if ever I start to rotate or uh, accelerate where I'm not supposed to, it puts that back into the feedback loop, adjusts the props. And so like 8,000 times a second, one of these small drones is updating its state of the world, adjusting the power output from the motors, and using that to stay in place. And that's what's made these small quadcopters work, is they're easy to fly once you have a computer flying it. So as a human, you're no longer having to do the controls and they'll hover. But like fixed wings have been around for decades the problem is, is a fixed wing aircraft or a fixed wing model aircraft is like a shark. You got to keep it flying <laughs> right, forward right. or it's going to crash. Right. And so I can fly a quadcopter easy because I'm lousy. <laughs> I can't fly my fixed wings very well. They're good at crashing into the ground. Yeah, I've got this uh, one of the cheaper DJI things. They're amazing. I mean, you just you whip out your smartphone, you tell it to start and it kind of pops up on its own to like, I don't know, 10 feet in the air and, sit, and then sits there. And it just it'll just stay there until I move it. It's like this object in 3D space that I all I have to do is decide you know where I want to put it. And then I whenever I stop moving it, it stops moving. It's it's really amazingly easy to, easy to control. It's and because fun. you have that feedback loop, you can have like a 10 mile an hour wind gust, and it'll just go right. It'll shake in the air a little as it has to adjust and struggle, and that's the consequence of the MEM sensors feedback loop. These little six-axis accelerometer gyros and nine-axis accelerometer gyro compasses that enable this low-level stability. You add in GPS for longer range, and you can literally go, I want a drone at this point in space. It's currently in that point in space. And as long as there's nothing in the way, it's very easy for a computer to just go and move it from here to there. So what are some of the other technological aspects of these things today? Like for consumer drones, you know, for things I might buy off the shelf today for, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks, you know, kind of mid-range, what kind of speed, what kind of distance, you know, how, what kind of flight time do you get out of these batteries? I know they have cameras, because that's like a big thing with a lot of the drones, they have cameras. Do they have other sensors too? So what's the state of the art of a modern consumer drone? So there's the consumer and there's the prosumer. Okay. So 
I like to look at basically the basic prosumers, the okay. stuff from DJI. DJI does really good stuff, as long as you don't mind the Chinese government being able to see your videos. <laughs> right. And so the DJIs that are a few thousand bucks, they'll have 30 minutes of endurance. The race drones are kind of a different ecological development. These are the small quadcopters where people put on goggles and race them around. Well, the first they person view, have, right? Yeah, they don't have the endurance. Those often only have like about 10 minutes of endurance. But that's because they're putting out so much power. Each one of those motors, and there's four of them, will be putting out half a kilowatt of power. And these things will literally be able to accelerate upwards at 9G, which means they're able to do full acceleration of 10G. They'll top out at well over 100 miles an hour. And the other thing is, is they're agile because yeah. they have so much acceleration that basically, uh, as long as the computer can point the uh, props in the direction it wants to go, it will go flying at an incredible rate of speed. So from like a privacy standpoint or a surveillance standpoint, what what, what kind of sensors are, are on a common drone? Obviously cameras. Most of them are pretty good. I think there are at least 4K cameras on a lot of them now, right? Yeah. Do they have mics? Do they have any infrared? Do they do they come with other sensors? Can they be outfitted with other sensors? They can easily be outfitted with other sensors. Off the shelf, they really don't. But there's like some nice $300 IR cameras you can buy. You can do an optical camera with IR cut, which isn't a thermal camera, but will see somewhat into the dark. But whatever you want to put on it that weighs a few ounces, you can. And with modern electronics, that's a lot of times to be a lot of different things. Yeah. Are there any like legal or technical restrictions on consumer drones? Do they like do I think you need a license at some point? Are there protected areas? Some of them, I think, have geofencing built in. Tell us a little bit about that. In the U.S., there's basically you have to get a permit from the FAA, but for non-commercial use it's basically a go online and solemnly swear you'll be up to no good and you have to register your drones which is like five bucks per drone and that's just basically an ownership test there are areas you cannot fly by federal rule so any controlled airspace with very limited exceptions you have to talk to the tower national parks nope military bases nope yeah yeah and all sorts of things like that. Washington, D.C. is basically one entire no-drone zone. <laughs> sure. And one of the nice things is the FAA has a convenient app that has a map for all the federal ones. There's additionally state and local restrictions that come into place. The other restrictions are commercial use. If you want to fly a drone for commercial use, you have to get a Part 107 pilot's license. Now, this license, of which I actually have one in my pocket, doesn't say you're any good at flying, just that you're allowed to. <laughs> Um, so if I'm a real estate agent and I want to take pictures of a property, does that involve that license or, or not? Yes. Okay. The operator should have that license. Okay. The other thing is, is you aren't allowed to fly over people unless either you have a waiver or it's certified for operation over people. 
However, 250 grams with a prop guard, it qualifies. So a small drone with a prop guard, so there's no laceration hazard, would qualify. You can't fly above like 400 feet. And critically, unless you get a waiver, you have to have operator line of sight. Either the operator Mm. or a spotter in communication with the operator has to have a set of Mark I eyeballs tracking the drone at all times. So are any of these restrictions, like particularly around airports and such, are those actually technically enforced? Like are there GPSs in these things or or some sort of beacons that these things understand that they will not, they will actually, no matter what you do, will not fly in these spaces? Or is it just honor system? It depends. If you build your own, it's honor system. If you're getting a DJI, DJI actually will enforce it in the uh, firmware. So the firmware for the DJI will know about various no-fly zones and may or may not enforce them depending. Okay. And from a privacy standpoint, if I, you said it, you're not allowed to fly them over people. I'm, it sounds like that's more for safety rules. But what about for yes. privacy rules? Can I, if I want to fly a drone over my, over my house and it drifts over my neighbor's yard where my neighbor's sunbathing or, you know, or if I'm going to a protest and I want to fly it over a protest, is that covered under the same, lo- the same restrictions? As far as I know, there's kind of still open season on that, mm-hmm. that there there hasn't been anything clear because the airspace is open. Airspace is, is free for all, and the FAA is the one in charge of airspace. Hmm. Okay. And the FAA is not going to want rules that say you can't fly over somebody's house. One other thing I think you even mentioned in the slides that I saw for your, for your Dr. Strange drone thing is do... Do these devices have a built-in transponder that identify the owner? Yes, now. So there's requirements from the FAA that starting in March, you must either be below the 250-gram weight limit or have a transponder that's just basically broadcasting serial number and GPS location over the Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. So it's a... it's cheap to comply in terms of actual hardware requirement. It's less than 20 bucks for raw cost. You can get transponders that are under 50 that you can just put on existing ones, or you just go below the weight limit, or you fly in certain designated areas where it's okay without a transponder. Okay. So I, I read across some articles, actually, and for some reason, they were all about NYPD, the New York, the New York Police Department. And I don't know if it's because they're leading the pack or if that's just what makes the news. But uh, several stories. One, of, one involved this Labor Day weekend. There was an article, I think, in the Washington Post about how they were going they were planning to use drones to monitor large outdoor parties. And the way if you read the article, I think it says only if somebody calls in a complaint or something. They're not just doing it randomly. But I mean, you know over private airspace or over someone's backyard barbecue, they could be sending in drones if they get a call about it. They're also talking about uh, using robots in the subways. We'll get to that a little bit later. But uh, are, do we know that law enforcement is using these things to monitor protests or the border? I think we've ta- I've heard them talk about monitoring the border, maybe high crime areas for local police departments. But I also know that law enforcement is very secretive about their surveillance tech. A lot of times in in, in lawsuits, they will actually come up with what they call parallel construction. They won't say where they got the information, even though if it came from a drone or a stingray or something, and uh, they'll say they got it some other way. What do we know about how law enforcement may be using these these devices to monitor and track us? Well, 
They are because they've done it for decades with helicopters. That the use of a drone as opposed to a helicopter is mostly a matter of budget. That big departments can have helicopters and they're expensive toys and they cost uh, several hundred bucks an hour in flight time when you consider training and everything else and the like. But a drone in the back of a squad car costs several hundred bucks, period. I don't think they're actually using them all that actively because they aren't that stealthy. That mm-hmm. the quadcopters are noticeable and notice, and they're not that loud when they're high up, but you will still see them. And so you're going to see them used, but not in sort of the we're going to parallel construct it kind of way, more in the this is overt, this is we're uh, looking around something. So it's not necessarily going to be covert surveillance. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, they are they are kind of loud. Certainly when they're close, you could you could definitely hear the distinctive whine of of the things. I I, I keep, and the, go ahead. And the other thing is, is they have to comply with the FAA rules, mm. too. And you don't do covert surveillance from something that's broadcasting on the Wi-Fi. Here I am. Mm. Here I am. And that, I think, is actually the biggest limit in terms of abuse is just they're starting in a few months have to be trivially detected by a cell phone. Hmm. Okay. I've also read an article recently about how drones were being used to smuggle things into prisons. They've got all these walls around there with guards, but in the middle of the night, you know, if you want to take something up to 200 feet and drop it in a baggie over the wall, it seems like a pretty easy thing to do. Do we know that drones are being used in criminal activities? Are they even used in cyber attacks somehow? Like if I if I put a Wi-Fi chip on it and wanted to you know, fly it over the NSA, or I don't know, I probably couldn't do that. But you know what I'm saying, a corporate building for espionage or something like that. Are they, are they used for things like for, that? For red teaming and fun, put kind of a cell phone Wi-Fi gateway on one and fly it on a building. But truth be told, that's just gilding the lily, because <laughs> if the Wi-Fi is accessible outside the building, mm. just stand a couple miles away with a Pringles can. Pringles can, yep. <laughs> and you get the same thing. Smuggling into prisons is a big problem, and that's one that's there have been several cases. The other one for criminal use is the Mexican drug cartels have decided drones make good assassin tools Ooh. and have literally modified off-the-shelf drones to act as both explosive payloads for attack and bombers dropping bombs on their rivals. Wow, <laughs> that's scary. What about drug smuggling? I would have to think they'd be using it for that too. Do, do they use subs and things like that for? I don't know the problem is with drug smuggling on the wholesale level is you've got to move mass. Sure. So moving a pound with a drone across the border is easy. That's not what the cartels want to move. They want to <laughs> move five tons across the border. Sure. And for that, it's either going to be, let's see, that's uh. 10,000 drones or 10,000 trips or one narco sub. Sure. All right, let's start talking about uh, AI a little bit here. Most of the drones today have a human operator, even if they've got some smarts built in to help them level off and, and hover and things like that to, you know, to, to do things, they generally have a human operator. But artificial intelligence being at everywhere now, I mean, certainly, you know, since last year with ChatGPT, we're talking about putting it in everything. 
how far off are fully autonomous drones for for consumers? We'll get into the slaughter bot. We'll get into slaughter bots a little bit later. But for like consumer level stuff, how far away are autonomous drones, and what kind of dangers might they present in in our everyday life if we start having that? For for example, I know that some drones are actually really cool. Like I saw these at CES. They were little handheld drones that you kind of threw up in the air, and they'd immediately start hovering, and they they look at you, and then they'd follow you. I mean, so it had enough smarts to do that sort of thing. That's actually already available, but. First of all, I would not talk about AI, that in building autonomy, AI is kind of like the last thing you want to do. What you want to do is think about the problem. But in terms of building autonomy, there's a lot already available. So like Skydio has some high-end drones sort of in the $10,000 range that have basically autonomous mapping and navigation. So the drone itself will see its surroundings, create a 3D model of the surroundings, and then fly through that 3D model. And that's already available today. I expect that type of stuff to get cheaper going forward and just a lot more usable. So... It basically removes a lot of expertise barriers. So Mm. why I want to build autonomy, among other things, I want to chase away birds. And the thing is, is for that, you'd want to use a fixed wing. But skilled fixed wing remote control pilots are expensive. Certified drone operators are cheap. So if you can add in more smarts to it, you can basically democratize the operations experience needed. And therefore, you can get away with not having to have super skilled operators. And that's where the autonomy is going on the commercial side, the consumer side, is stuff so that you don't have to worry about crashing your drone. What about, as I guess I'm thinking about, you're talking about earlier about going from point A to point B. If, if with autonomy, you kind of built in certain levels of autonomy, I can tell to avoid obstacles along the way, right? It doesn't have to do a straight line. I've also seen some really amazing videos that, with researchers with swarms of drones that do all sorts of things, you know, circling through hula hoops and all these kind of weird things, but also avoidance. Like, you know, here's, here's, a, here's a set of drones in a certain formation, and I want you to go from here to there. No, there's obstacles along the way. And these drones move out of the way around the obstacles and then reform. While technically that's amazing to me as an engineer, it seems like there's also somehow there's got to be like ways I could abuse that as a criminal or as a, a terrorist or something to do something really nefarious. Well, this is getting into the slaughter bots. Yeah, that... Yeah. The problem is, it doesn't take much to kill you. Hmm. Lethality is a matter of 250 grams, the weight of a baseball, is enough to kill, pack enough explosive to kill everybody in about a 10 meter radius. Wow. Because that's a hand grenade. Hmm. Sure. And drones with autonomy are probably the best way for somebody with nefarious attitude to put that 250 gram thing right where the bad guy wants it to go. And that's why the autonomy is so scary, is because it enables that for anybody who can A, get the drone, B, have the autonomy, and C, have the explosive. Do those technological things exist today? Or do they still need human human in the, in the loop? 
They're close. So right now there's a strong reluctance to go for full autonomy. But there are some drones of that style, um, notably the cargo from uh, Turkey, which is a bit bigger. It's carrying a basically a claymore mine, which will kill people in like a hundred meter radius. And they claim some level of artificial intelligence autonomy that can be used. In Ukraine, they are going much more into autonomy. So building fixed wing drones that can recognize X classes of vehicles and automatically drop their payload on that and return for when communication is absent. And so they're rapidly evolving towards a model I like to call human on the loop with failed deadly autonomy. So the idea is drones are fast. Drones need to react fast. So the human is not in the decision cycle, but is on top of the decision cycle going, go here, go there. This is not a valid target. That is. But in the absence, the drone just continues. And then in the event of loss of communication, the drone just goes into mm. kill all humans mode because it goes, I'm on the hostile territory side. I can't communicate. I'm going to go. Ugh. And this is, this is to my mind, not a preferable world, but it's an inevitable world. So. Ukraine is going for this because the drones that are human-mediated, the drones that are human on the loop, are very vulnerable to jamming. Just basically things mm. that are shouting in the electromagnetic spectrum really loud. It's hard to have a conversation next to a rock concert. And so these small drones, medium-sized drones, are switching towards this focus towards autonomy just out of necessity that when you have this attack, counter, attack, counter, if you can jump to a spot where the counters don't work, you're going to jump to that spot sooner or later. There was a, a world leader assassination attempt by a drone in uh, it was Maduro, wasn't it? What, what yes. was that story? So this was a few years ago. This was 2018, 2019, I believe. It was... It was in the before times. That's <laughs> the before times, the after times. Right, uh, right. When did you start drinking? March 2020. <laughs> um, so in the before times, Nicolas Maduro, the uh, El Presidente, a.k.a. dictator of Venezuela, was giving a speech. Somebody purchased two GJI Matrix 600s. These are slightly bigger professional level drones they're they're able to lift a few kilogram payload they're commonly used for cameras for professional filming and the like brought them into venezuela put explosives on them and uh sent them to assassinate a nation-state leader they failed one of them crashed into a building rolled along the side and blew up at the bottom the other blew up in midair and we don't know if that was a failure or jamming or what, but the suspicion is that there was enough jamming out there that that didn't work. That um, don't expect your Wi-Fi and cell phone to work when the president's in town. 
because these things are all communicating on the same 2.4 and 5 gigahertz bands, and so therefore they're easy to jam. And that was probably what happened. And this is why, though, that the next generation will be autonomous, because that's how you counter that failure mode. Well, and I I don't know if anybody listening has seen these, but there's almost like the new fireworks displays. They've got thousands of swarm drones up in the sky painting three-dimensional pictures with light, uh, which are really amazing. But that, I mean, maybe I read too many thriller novels, but I, <laughs> I immediately thought is, what if I sent that drone after the president or, you know, in some autonomous sort of way? It, it, having two drones is an interesting idea, but a thousand drones that are cheaper that all have, that I only care if maybe 10% actually make it to target. Uh, and they're, they're coming from 360-degree spherical everywhere. Gosh, if I was a secret service, I would think I would be really worried about things like that. Do we have defenses? I mean, like you talked about jamming. What about things like EMP, electromagnetic pulse? Do we, are we developing, I assume we must be, some sort of countermeasures for this? Uh, There's a lot of work on countermeasures, but there's basically things that won't work, but sound cool, (laughs) things that might work and things that will work. The things that won't work are jamming as I mentioned, EMP won't work either because uh, electromagnetic pulses, really, you want a nuke to generate that, and that's not going to be your drone defense. (laughs) But also, it's very easy to shield. Hmm. If I'm worried about electromagnetic interference on my drone, I basically put everything but the antennas in a metal box. Tinfoil box, really. Yeah, a Faraday cage is all you need, especially because you don't actually have to stop it completely. You just have to mitigate it enough. Uh, Direct energy lasers might be interesting, but you're going to have to get a laser that can fire a lot of energy quickly, repeatedly, which is going to be really hard. The two things that I think will work are drones as well. Basically, send a drone to fight a drone. And what are known as distance-fused munitions. So a distance-fused munition is a modern version of a World War II anti-aircraft shell. Hmm. So in World War II, the anti-aircraft guns weren't trying to hit the aircraft. What they were trying to do is put the shells around the aircraft because the shells explode at a given altitude. So you set the altitude and it goes. And so that's why, like on the World War II footage, you see the poofs Mm. in the sky Mm -hmm. around the plane. Those are anti-aircraft shells going off. You can do these miniaturized and under computer control these days. And so... You have, for example, the best defense that uh, Ukraine has against the Shahed uh, cruise missiles are the Flakpanzer Gepard, which is a German-modified panzer tank with uh, two anti-aircraft guns on it that's computer-controlled. Hmm. And it's about the only one where you can shoot down a $20,000 Shahed and not go, oh, damn, I cost too much money shooting down that drone. You can miniaturize these further. So the U.S. military a few years ago was trying to do infantry weapons, the XM whatever. They tested it in Afghanistan, and 
it wasn't really all that suitable for a infantry soldier because they were carrying this instead of their rifle and it would only be like 10 shots. Mm. But if you put something like that in a computer-controlled turret on top of a Humvee with a 100-round box of ammunition, you could basically take out 50-plus drones. And also when you're talking about drones, drones are actually kind of delicate that you don't necessarily need to blow up the drone. You just have to have the drone go through a cloud of carbon fiber ribbon and it will cease working. And so you could build small distance fused munitions that are basically carbon fiber party poppers. They fly out at a fixed distance. They send off the streamers everywhere and a aggressive drone is not going to be all that happy when the ribbons get into the props and the prop guards and you have a few weights on it and it's just going to mess up the aerodynamics and everything. Hmm. But in order to do that, you're going to have to make sure it's cheap. It's going to have to be computer controlled and it's going to have to be autonomous. When you have the system enabled, it has to react automatically because the attacking drone or swarm could be 100 mile an hour race drones that are literally flying at you from treetop level. So you have maybe two seconds of warning before you need to take it out. And that has to be computer controlled. Likewise, defensive drones can be doing the same thing. You can either collide as a defensive drone. You can be dragging ribbons behind you. A defensive drone could also be armed with party popper guns. So you have these distance-fused munitions, you have like two or three shots on one drone, and now this drone can target two or three, and then after that collide if if need be. And that's what I think the defense is going to look like, is basically drones to attack drones. And that means that as a defender, you have to go cheap too, that it's... Quantity has a quality all its own. If I'm talking about the drone wars of the future, my goal is not sixty or $50,000 switchblades, because those switchblade drones that the military uses, they're $50,000 a piece, and they carry one grenade worth of payload. I'd be talking things, my goal would be $500 a piece. Even with the U.S. military that has more money than God, <laughs> their threshold for purchase should be 5000 not fifty, um, because you need so much defense in order to deal with the attack swarms. The other thing is, is the attack swarms give a real benefit to the defender, that it's very easy to do the attack swarm that runs on your own territory. You just literally hide them in boxes around. And when the invaders come, they have to deal with the prepackaged killbot insurgency. It's far less effective for offense because for offense, you're going to have to get those drones a few hundred miles away. You could do some things and that would allow you to do attacks on soft strategic targets like logistics nodes and the like. But it's still one where you aren't going to use this as your mainline offense. You're going to use this as your mainline defense 
and strategic far-reach defense. You aren't going to be able to do something like, you're Moscow, you're invading Kiev again, and send 10,000 killbots into Kiev. You're only going to be able to send 10,000 killbots within 10 kilometers of where your forces are. Mm-hmm. And so it's remarkably poor at projecting power outward, but it's really, really good at making uh, a defensive dark forest. The notion of you create a defensive environment where if the attacker is spotted, they're attacked and killed immediately. So like, if I was in Taiwan, in Taiwan's defense establishment, I would very much be building a drone-based dark forest for the island. So basically, I'd be going, China, yeah, you can bomb us all you want. You will not be able to invade and live. So we've talked a lot about explosive things like that. What about, and it just, again, that seems like straight out of a novel, but what about poisons or biological weapons or things like that? Is that, maybe it's only a nation-state uh, we'll pull something like that off, but it, is that that's got to be another kind of threat here, right? Um, if you can do biological or chemical, you don't need the drones. Uh, look at Amshin Rikio in the uh, Tokyo subway; they were able to mm. do a chemical terrorist attack and attempted bioterrorism without using a drone for a delivery system. So, I don't see that as being particularly threatening because also once they're at the tech where they can get their kilogram of sarin you already have a huge problem gotcha all right so you mentioned the the ukraine war that and drones have been used as successfully by the ukrainians um, against some ships and things like that have we seen some of the evidence of some of the things you're talking about in uh, even in the, skirm- uh, the the war now between Israel and uh, Hamas, especially I would think from the side with the least amount of money and technical skills, these seems to be good for asymmetric kind of warfare. Are we seeing the things you're talking about actually in use today? Are we learning from what's been happening in these conflicts? Yes. So for example, the Israeli military is woefully unprepared on the drone front. There is footage from Hamas, of them taking what looks to be an off-the-shelf DJI, based on the graphic user interface, fixing it with a bomb, and dropping the bomb on an Israeli tank. And the tank lights on fire. Somebody screwed up big time in the Israeli government and the defense establishment. A, not having jamming infrastructure around main battle tanks. Your top-tier $4 million battle tank got taken out by a $4,000 GJI drone. (laughs) Nobody in the Israeli government had contacted DJI going, hey, at least put up no-fly zones around Gaza. And so that was seen. In Ukraine, it's been really active. So at the start, there's been a lot of use of DJIs and other drones for spotters. Very quickly, they were adapted to drop bombs. So there's footage from very early on in the invasion where you would see a drone from 100 meters up able to drop munitions into an open tank hatch. Wow. As well as some really good propaganda videos produced that way, too. And this has been from both sides. Both Ukraine and Russia have been doing this. Recently, over the past year, it's gotten much more jamming heavy. 
So a lot of drones are jammed. There have been use of heavy lift drones. So like Ukraine has taken some heavy lift octocopters, uh, had like six bombs on them, flown them over the target and drop repeatedly. Right now, a big thrust in Ukraine is doing these race drones, doing these $5,000 or $500 first person view race drones, sticking munitions on them and using them to attack targets of opportunity. Things like flying the drone in through the window on a bunker. Huh. And those are under manual control. They're having to get closer to the front because of jamming. But also, Ukraine is doing a lot of development of drones with autonomous capabilities. They've got multiple companies, and basically those are going in the slightly more expensive sort of the $10,000 fixed wings, um, because fixed wings have much more range. And so they fly out. And if they can communicate back, they communicate back. But if they can't, they will go, oh, this looks like a Russian tank. I'm going to drop my bomb on it and fly back home. These things have got to probably be invisible on radar just because they're so small. How do you detect these things? They're autonomous drones that don't have communications. Is there any way to see these things coming technically? Well, radar is very interesting on these because if you fly high on these small drones they'll still probably show up on radar unless you go throughout and make efforts to make them stealth but you can go out and make them stealth the problem is is you fly low that the attacking drone is if it's at 100 feet 200 feet it's still going to be hard to see and hear but it's going to be very much in the ground clutter and very hard to detect on radar in many ways, the best sensor for detecting drones are cameras, just simply because that's a lot harder to hide from. But it takes a lot of cameras. It takes communication. It's it's a hard problem to see these things coming. Hmm. Yeah, I was kind of worried about that. <laughs> Especially when they're autonomous, that if right. they're under manual control, it's easy. It's called a radio antenna. Or better yet, you get a software-defined radio set up and like a four or eight antenna phased array, and you can go, oh, this is a thing broadcasting on the Wi-Fi bands uh, 200 meters up, going at 50 meters this way, blah, blah, blah. That you can detect. But that's the other problem with the autonomy, is autonomy doesn't allow you to just work when communications are absent, it allows you a level of stealth that is otherwise unavailable by just not talking. So I would have to think that these this technology has so many uses that it, that it's there really must be fundamentally changing military tactics. Like I mean, it was kind of like when planes started being used in in uh, in warfare or gunpowder. I mean, <laughs> this seems like a really revolutionary kind of technology for a lot of reasons. You know, not just reconnaissance, but as we're already talking about and, and for killing things. Has the U.S. government been keeping on top of this? Do we? It seems like again, uh, this would be a very asymmetric warfare kind of situation where an insurgency or a much a uh, lower-funded, less technical opponent could uh, undo a lot of what you're doing. It'd take a billion dollars. I don't know what aircraft carriers cost. Let's say it's a billion. <laughs> a billion-dollar aircraft uh, they're carrier. They're about six billion, okay, actually. Six billion. I was only off by a couple billion. And But if I launched a thousand, you know, $1,000 drones at them, if I could sink one, that'd be a real big win. Or you don't. 
you don't sink the aircraft carrier. You just make the carrier hangar deck unusable. Oh, sure. Yeah, right. That that That's one of the things about the small drones that is particularly interesting is that these small drones, what you can do is you can have them perch. You can have them hide. And so if you have a major logistics base where once every 33 minutes a drone pops up out of the woodwork and goes after somebody flying five feet off the deck, you're going to have a problem. It's going to be very, very disruptive. And that's a lot of the power of the small drones is just the the disruption and the terror you can in, engender on a logistics base. That if you're an adversary of the U.S., your goal is not to get that military base that's uh, that's uh, close to you. Your goal is to disrupt Travis Air Force Base, where all the C-130s and the C-8 galaxies are flying out of. That you disrupt someplace like Travis, and you disrupt the U.S. military. And it's scary. Yeah, all this, all of this is kind of scary. So let, let's talk a little bit more about these slaughterbots. What... Uh... Because we're, we're putting AI in everything now, and I, I know you were you're talking more about autonomy, but how bad of an idea is it to give lethal drones this autonomy or agency? They, I assume that our U.S. government, I think you even said this in your slides you mentioned today, that U.S. government is loathe, loathe to do that, but that's us. I mean, what about, uh, are there other countries that are, that are doing it? Are there international treaties or in place? There's that- no treaties. But truth be told, is a landmine an autonomous weapon? Hmm. The the notion of banning autonomous weapons really gets messy because it's really hard to define what it is. That hmm. I'll argue that a landmine is an autonomous weapon. Now, let's suppose I can modify the landmine with intelligence so it will only blow up if a soldier steps on it. Would this be better or worse? Hmm. My argument is this would be vastly better because you're much more proportional. In building autonomy and precision, you have the potential to be much more discriminant. That suppose you want to take out a target, which is going to do more collateral damage. A hand grenade 10 centimeters above the target, an artillery shell 50 meters away, or a thousand pound bomb from an aircraft. They're all going to get the target. They're all going to be the necessary proportional force to get that target given the technology being employed, which is going to do more collateral damage. Hmm. Okay. So what, we, could, we could be using that same automated technology though on the on bombs, on things that are doing much more damage. They don't have to be used on small things, right? Right, but it's not necessary. We that that there's the 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 saying almost only counts in horseshoes, hand grenades, and atomic bombs. That's using more explosive, more damage to reduce the need for precision. Once you have more precision, you don't need to do as much damage. So, like this is why, for example, the Air Force has shifted away from two thousand pound bombs to five hundred pound bombs. Because with more precision in the bomb, 
you'd no longer need the huge explosion for collateral damage. And it gets even more so once you start adding more and more precision. So I don't necessarily see the advent of autonomy as necessarily bad, that the it's how it gets used. And if it gets used in ways that restrict it to only hitting military targets, it's actually better than the alternatives because it is more precise. Interesting. All right. So as we wrap up, uh, let's look. Let's look ahead. What are some of the drone-related technologies that might be coming down the pike? Things that aren't there yet, or maybe just around the corner, that you know may make drones more lethal, or more dangerous. What are that, or give us other even privacy or security concerns? What what what's what do we need to be worrying about over the over the horizon? The realization that you don't need as much compute as you think. That um, the current autonomous drones, like from Skydio and the like, are using expensive chips. They're using NVIDIA chips, customized NVIDIA chips, mind you. And NVIDIA is not the best company to work for and or work with and rather painful and not cheap. But when you think in terms of autonomy and not AI, you can get away with a Raspberry Pi that a Raspberry Pi has a quad-core processor running at 1.5 gigahertz and has sufficient processing to do things like stereo image reconstruction at 8 frames a second. Then you can do identification of potential things, throw the machine learning at that and the like. And to do this level of autonomy that creates the uh, slaughter bots and the slaughter bot slaughtering slaughter bots and all that stuff, it doesn't take these hugely expensive AI-powered things. It takes understanding the inexpensive stuff and using it well. And so, like, for Ukraine, there was an article in the Washington Post on some of these internal developments, and they had photographs of some of the fixed-wing ones that they were developing with a focus on autonomy. One, you could see the autopilot was an off-the-shelf Pixhawk-based cube autopilot, about the size of a couple of decks of cards, and a Raspberry Pi 3, not even a 4, for doing the vision processing and the high-level communication and everything else. I wonder how they're getting those Raspberry Pis. Those things are hard to come by. (laughs) Uh, Not anymore. So uh, the Raspberry Pi has finally gotten their supply chain in order. And the thing is, is their supply chain has actually been pretty good over the past year for their real customers. That the real customers of Raspberry Pi are not you and me who want to play with toys. They're people like me who are building systems that need an embedded computer. And so there are tons of Raspberry Pis that were being shipped over the past year just into the existing industrial supply chain for the existing Raspberry Pi customers. Yeah, and I know you work with some of this at, uh, at, at Scary. So if I was, last question before we go, if I want to get into this as a hobby, obviously I could buy a lot of these things off the shelf. But it sounds to me like what you're saying is a lot of the technologies that you need are available for home hobbyists. You could, you could perhaps build a one on your own. Are there, are there off the shelf, you know, open source software and things I could be using? What, if I was interested in this, what, how would I go about that? 
There's a lot. So there's um, three open source software packages for the autopilots of Note. Betaflight, which is optimized for quadcopters and race drones and runs like a bat out of hell. Ardupilot, which is designed to run anything. And PX4, which is a bit more stripped down and optimized for flying things. There's plenty of off-the-shelf autopilots you can buy. Um, you can get some bigger ones that are off-the-shelf autopilot and Raspberry Pi, or you just cobble them together. As long as you don't mind being a little bit bigger, just take a autopilot, shove a Raspberry Pi on your frame, and yeah, you'll be a slightly bigger drone. You won't have the performance, but you can easily assemble that on your own and basically be making your own flying drone, your own flying Pi. <laughs> Well, as a technologist, that excites me. As a as a citizen, it kind of scares the hell out of me to know that they're that easy for someone to, to, to put together and maybe do something bad with. So I know you've actually been working on this. So tell me why you think it's so easy. You were actually showing me a little mock-up there. What, what, tell me what this you're This isn't a mock-up. This is a working board. So right. this, is, this is my autopilot design. This is my third revision at this point. So I've taken an off-the-shelf open-source autopilot, a GPS, a second coprocessor that I should be able to do a uh, drone ID because it's a coprocessor that has a Wi-Fi on it, a LoRa chip that should allow me to do a 15-kilometer data link, two camera interfaces all mated to a Raspberry Pi compute module. So we're talking something smaller than a credit card that has all the compute needed necessary. My previous prototype, just uh, this thing, it flew until I burned out a motor um, and basically showed that um, the capability's all there. And this is something that my prototype board, I've spent like 6,000, 7,000 getting my first six, 10 prototypes back. But if I wanted to mass produce the thing, if you want a hundred of these, I can produce them for 200 bucks a copy, basically because of the economies of scale. And the reason why I'm doing this is because I want to build autonomous drones cheaply for multiple applications. So one is I want to build drones to hunt other drones because I hate drones and I want to build <laughs> drones to help hunt drones. But there's also really good civilian use when you can go into low-cost fixed wings. So this, the airframe, I'm holding up a, a fixed-wing airframe. This little thing is a $100 airframe, $120 airframe with motor and servos. And for those who can't see it, it looks like a little delta wing. Yeah, it's uh, a little delta wing made out of polypropylene foam even has a mount for a camera in the front. If I can build this autonomous, I now have a fixed wing that I no longer need good operator skill because flying this thing takes more skill than I got. <laughs> if I add a prop guard on the back, I can easily meet the FAA standards for operating over people because this thing, if it hits you, you're going to be pissed. But... It's literally made of bumper foam, so right. it will annoy you, it won't injure you. So you can meet the standards that are crash-based for operation over people. 
And then using that, then there's all sorts of applications. Like one would be a fire watch. So I'm in California. We have wildfires. It would be really nice to, at the fire camera, have a bank of small drones that they could dispatch one, have it fly out over the horizon, look around, fly back, works without communication because it's autonomous, and can get the FAA waiver for autonomous operation because it's person safe. And you also stick in a plane transponder receiver. And if it knows there's a plane in the area, it avoids the plane. And if it has to crash, who cares? It's a $200 computer and a $100 airframe. It'll probably survive the crash, too. You can just go pick it up. Yeah. You, you, you just, assuming it crashed in some area where you can actually go pick it up, you just pick it up, put it in a new airframe and call it good. Or another one is bird abatement that it, I live in Napa, vineyards. There are two companies in the area, not one, two, that will rent you a falcon. <laughs> that oh, will rent you a falcon and falconer. Okay, a lot of peregrine gear falcons red tails, whatever, and they will fly the falcon over your vineyard to chase away the birds. Now, this is a great business, except for two problems. Falcons don't scale quick, and falconers are skilled. Mm. But if you have an autonomous fixed-wing drone, all you need is a employee that has a FAA certification to launch the drone, watch it, rebattery it, etc., so that you could do this business of bird abatement, but be able to scale it by not needing the human skill nearly as much and not needing the long latency production time that is a peregrine. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. So, uh, what are these? Gonna, what, when can I see something coming out of Scary Technologies? What's what's your time horizon? I don't know. The problem with being a one-man mad scientist is you really want some minions. Um, (laughs) I may actually be uh, in a position to sell my board to other researchers, so the academic crowd might find my boards useful, and if so, I can start selling it to them for like a thousand bucks a piece so I get huge profit so I can just (laughs) make more boards. And so... It it really depends. I've got a couple of things I'm looking for to get funding. So like I've got a SBIR to the Air Force going, hey, you you know that big billion dollar program the Assistant Secretary of Defense just announced? Give me 75000 and I'll write you the report on how you can do it for a lot less money than that. All right. Well, I'm glad we kind of ended on a movie, some positive impacts for drones. So uh, thanks again, Nick, for coming on the show. That was a lot of fun. Thank you very much for having me. So I know that was a little bit outside the normal uh, realm of interview type shows that I do. So I hope you found that interesting and hopefully not terribly scary, but I think it is something we need to be aware of. And I, it, along with AI and some other technologies, there have been some advancements that have allowed drones to do some pretty amazing stuff. And when you start adding in some autonomy, uh, we need to be careful about uh, what we allow these things to do. Uh, okay, so I said there was a couple of things I wanted to circle back to after the interview. He talked about a Pringles can antenna, actually sometimes affectionately called a cantenna. And it's a clever 
thing that people have used to create directional antennas. It's actually a Pringles can because a lot of the Pringles can are lined with foil. And in certain situations, for certain frequencies, not all, uh, you can actually use a Pringles can to do long distance directional uh, antennas, sending and receiving. Some people have used them to try to get on somebody's Wi-Fi from a distance. Actually, does it work terribly well, I guess, for that? I heard that they're, they're not very well tuned for 2.4 gigahertz. But anyway, that's what he was talking about. Bruce Schneier linked to an interesting article on the future of drone warfare. If you're interested, I'll put a link to that in the show notes, along with several other things that either Nick referred to or I think are relevant, including a lot of those open source software packages for building your own drones. All that's in the show notes if you're interested. I talked about this back when it happened, but there was also a very interesting story. We didn't get to talk about it today, but there was a story of, a, of an AI drone purportedly killing its operator to prevent them from interfering with its killing. Uh, spoiler alert, it wasn't really true. Or So anyway, but if you want to see the article, there's an interesting one in the show notes about that. Uh, and one thing he also mentioned was SBIR. Uh, that is Small Business Innovation Research. There's a whole website of the U.S. government for this called SBIR.gov. And I actually want to look at this myself. This is an opportunity for enterprising people or small companies to look at things that the government needs and they're kind of putting it out there and saying, hey, if you if you want to work on this, we'll give you a little money and see if you can do it. I'm sure you've got to apply and you've got to convince them that you're capable. But uh, that might be a, a fun way to do a project if you're if you're so inclined. That's what he was talking about there, SBIR. And, and of course, the my patrons will get some bonus Q&A with Nick uh, on Thursday. We delved into some more of the military stuff taken from his Dr. Strange Drone talk slides. And we talk about other types of autonomous things like uh, robo dogs and uh, underwater drones. So anyway, patrons, of course, will get that on Thursday as usual. So again, reminder, my annual listener survey is up. I need as much feedback as possible. Uh, I am still reading the stuff that's coming in. Uh, once it's all in, I will definitely delve through every single response. I want to hear from everybody. And I want to hear about the things you like because I want to keep doing those things. Uh, and if you know, if you've got some constructive feedback on things you'd like me to change, I'd, I'm open to hearing that too. I've responded to that in the past by making changes. And again, to help incentivize you do this, uh, I will be selecting 10 random respondents to win a free copy of my book. And that includes uh, international shipping in a lot of cases. Can't promise everywhere, but I think uh, we have pretty good reach there. The only requirement there is that you actually make a good faith estimate to fill out all the questions. If you're going to be a winner, you know, you can't just fill in a blank form. To fill out that survey, go to fdsd.me slash survey 2024, all lowercase. And then, of course, there's a link in the show notes. You have until the end of this month. All right, we've got a lot of great interviews. I've actually recorded, I think, three since the last time we talked. Uh, so those are all banked up, and those, those will be coming out soon. I had a great talk with Joseph and Jason from 404 Media. I talked with Jen Kaltreiter from uh, Mozilla's Privacy Not Included group. And I've got an interview on macOS security and computer security in general from Patrick Wardle. And there's even there's even more than that uh, waiting in the wing. So if you have not already subscribed, that way you won't miss any of that. All right, that'll do it for this week. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>